name's Rusty. If I haven't met you before, um, I'll be doing the Bible reading today. You may have noticed uh, the Bible. there are Bibles in front of your seats, um, so feel free to grab those or use your mobile devices uh, if you like. Um, I'll be reading from Ezekiel 36, verses 22 to 38, and also 37, 1 to 14. You'll find that uh, on page 865. I'll give you a minute to pull that up. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord. When I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you, your heart of stone and give you, uh, your, uh, you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanliness. I will call for, you, I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and you will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. You will rem then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you remain will know that I the Lord have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate I the Lord have spoken and I will do it this is what the sovereign Lord says once again I will yield to Israel's plea and do this for them I will make their people as numerous as sheep as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed festivals so will the ruined cities be filled with the flocks of people then they will know that I am the Lord. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out of the spirit of the Lord and sent me into the middle of, the val of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? 
I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophecy to these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And this is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will breathe into you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, and I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophecy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breathe from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied, and he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophecy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that the Lord has spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Morning to those watching online, great to have you here. Let me pray as we think about what that profound passage has to say to us. Father, we do thank you for your word. It brings us new mercies every morning, new insights into you and your ways. And Father, speak to us from it today about the new life that you bring in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Back in 2007, there was a movie that came out called The Bucket List. Just put your hands up if you saw that movie, a few people here. Uh, if you didn't see it, uh, it was not well-reviewed on uh, the movie review sites, four and a half out of ten, but it actually um, made a lot of money because it became very popular in the cinemas and it picked up a concept which in many ways was fairly niche at the time. Um, kind of under the cover, people had their own bucket lists um, and made that concept um, something far more well-known. Uh, it starred two very well-known actors who obviously helped, uh, Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman, and uh, typically I'm happy watching any of the movies that they put out, uh, two very good actors. And it tells the story of basically these two guys who from very different parts of life, Morgan Freeman, uh, very bright, could have been a professor, ended up working kind of a more regular day job, loved history, he meets Jack Nicholson, who was a billionaire uh, and not the nicest of characters, fairly narcissistic in terms of temperament. And they both have incurable cancer and meet at the hospital that Jack Nicholson actually owns. And they're put in a room together. And the story is about the bucket list that's created between uh, Jack and Morgan. Morgan's often thought of these different things. And 
Jack Nicholson, with the money, helps Morgan Freeman live out his dreams in terms of the bucket list. Very interesting movie in terms of what it teaches and what it reflects on in life. But it's interesting, if you're not familiar with the bucket list, um, I've got a definition here because since that movie, there's been a proliferation of kind of almost, you'd say, businesses that trade off this concept. And this is what one of those businesses says, a bucket list is a collection of goals, dreams and aspirations that you'd like to accomplish within your lifetime. The basic meaning of a bucket list is to keep track of your goals and to take steps to achieving these goals in order to maximise the incredible experiences in your life. And I think behind the whole idea is you tick these things off before you literally kick the bucket. And um, that phrase, to kick the bucket, I did a bit of research, apparently it comes from back in the Middle Ages when the hangman would put you on a bucket and then he would kick the bucket all over, Red Rover. Anyway, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but uh, you could see that phrase taking off, to kick the bucket. The problem with the bucket list, I think, for us as Christians is typically it says, my experiences are what are most important in life before I die. And there's nothing wrong with having goals, uh, dreams, uh, there's things that we'd like to accomplish. But it's interesting, the whole industry that is now built around this concept of the bucket list, that basically we define ourselves by the achievements that typically are, you know, significant ones to see the Northern Lights. I had to laugh. One of the uh, common ones for people is swimming with the dolphins. I thought, well, it's pretty common here in Manly, isn't it? Go and swim with the dolphins. Often see them out the back of the surf in the lineup. What's new for that? But anyway, there's lots of other ones there. But is life really just about ticking off a list of goals on our bucket list? We come to a very powerful passage in Ezekiel that really challenges this whole notion and really reorientates us, disorientates us, you could say, in terms of our thoughts about actually what is the meaning of life. And as we've gone through Ezekiel, it's got a very powerful critique of human nature, of the way people have strayed from God, both Israel, God's people and the nations around, human pride, and it confronts us with a God who will bring judgment. And it is a confronting book. We get to the back end now and there's light and there's life. And in these two chapters we had read to us, chapter 36 and 37, there are two key truths here that kept jumping off the page at me. There's a revolutionary truth about God. And there's also this incredible transforming truth regarding what God does. And they're the two things I want us to think about. uh, The revolutionary truth about God and the transforming truth that comes from Him. Firstly, the revolutionary truth. If you've got your Bibles there, and I did note that we've got them back in the seats, uh, a great joy. You don't have to get your device out. You can actually now... I mean, I don't know about you, but there's just something about reading my Bible that is so much better than reading a phone screen um, and an iPad. It just feels very homely and just so familiar in terms of what an iPad isn't. So if you've got your Bibles there, open up. And we're at page 865... And we're going to look at this profound chapter first, 36, and then have a brief reflection on chapter 37. And we kind of jumped into the reading a little bit into this section. I'm going to read from 22, 
Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to you, it is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. Now, I don't know how you found reading that, but it kind of sticks in my throat every time I read that verse. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. I just want you to sit and reflect on that. What God is describing here is the way he is going to bring salvation to Israel and through that to the world. And it seems counterintuitive. I mean, you think of John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But yet here in Ezekiel, it seems to say almost the opposite. I'm not doing it because of you. But it's for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. What's going on? Why is God saying this? Why is it for his sake and not the people's sake that he is going to bring salvation? Well, let me use an illustration to explain the concept. What he says there is it's for the sake of my holy name. And the word name there is not a title. It means his reputation. And his reputation had been, if I can put it this way, dragged through the mud by Israel. And when you read the earlier chapters, what, Israel is, uh, what God is saying is, you have destroyed my reputation, particularly among the nations. You've dragged it through the mud. And the nations now scoff at me. I brought judgment on you because the way you brought idolatry into the land and so I scattered you from the land. And there is no awe or wonder at the name of Yahweh, which God was known by with the people of Israel. I want you to think about reputation and having a name. In the world today, there are 29 monarchs. Now, when I say a monarch, uh, it could be a king, it could be a queen, it could be a sultan... Um, others are grand dukes. It's very interesting the way uh, you can have a figure who literally is the monarch, the, the ruler of the country. Now, sometimes it's a ceremonial figure. Um, they have given power to a parliament to effectively run the country, but they still sit as the monarch over that country and even numbers of countries. Now, we're typical of that kind of arrangement where we have the queen who is over us, but we have a parliament, we have a separation of um, us and her and her powers at that level. But it's interesting, um, when you think about the Queen, she's one of these 29 monarchs. She has a reputation. And it's interesting, we don't call her Queen Elizabeth. What do we call her? The Queen. <laughs> we just have to say, the Queen, because that's how we know her. Such is her reputation. And it's worth saying, when you think about Queen Elizabeth II, which is really her more formal title... She is a person of incredible um, regal nature. She's distinguished, she's wise, she's measured. And I don't think she's just one of the great monarchs of current history. She will go down, I think, as one of the great monarchs of world history. I think she currently is the longest serving monarch ever. 
astounding figure and whether you're a monarchist or a republican at heart, everyone I know has this incredibly high view of Queen Elizabeth II and there she is, the Queen. You just love the way she dresses. I mean, I'm a bloke and I still think she's fantastic. And I was going to put one with the crown on, but I thought, no, she just looks so good. And you think of her in comparison to say, and with no disrespect to the nation of Tonga, the king of Tonga currently sitting on the throne is King Tupu VI. And there's really no comparison, is there? And that's no disrespect to any people of Tongan heritage here who may be in the building or listening online. I'm sure King Tupu VI is a great king. But he's got nothing on Queen Elizabeth II, the Queen. But imagine someone trashed the Queen's reputation. I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Now, I'm going to be slightly cheeky here. Can you imagine if someone in the public arena called her or her family racist? Shock horror. She'd be right to defend that, wouldn't she? But that would never happen, would it? And you see, when you are the king, you have a reputation. And what had happened with the people of Israel is that they had trashed the reputation of God. It was in tatters. There was no sense of fear of him in any part of the world. And God says to Israel, it is not for your sake, people of Israel, I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. In other words, my name, my reputation, which is above all else. To be holy is to be set apart. And his name was to be set apart. And he says, because you have profaned it among the nations where you've gone. And let me say, this is a revolutionary truth. What God is saying is that the centre of the universe is not me, it's not I, it's not us, it's not you, it is God. He is at the centre of this world that we live in. It's interesting when you think about the bucket list, because it's a concept that puts us at the centre. Typically, when you look at what is on people's bucket lists, it's all about what I am going to do before I the bucket and you have to ask the question in our current culture what is it that people think actually is the meaning of life and the bucket list at one level sums it up so well experience the most you can before you die another famous description of the meaning of life actually comes from an ancient philosopher from North Africa he's um, Epicurus sorry ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus and he said these words let me read to you. We recognize pleasure as the first good innate in us. In other words, the thing that is most important in us is pleasure and the seeking of it, the experience of it. And from pleasure, we begin every act of choice and avoidance. And to pleasure, we return again using the feeling as the standard by which we judge every good. You could sum it up by saying the meaning of life is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. Well, let me say, that is the world we live in, and it goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks with Epicurus. 
And again, what's the centre of the universe? Me. We. You. I. And God confronts us that there's an alternate take on life that says actually no. At the centre of the universe is God himself. And he is going to act in a way to restore his reputation so that the world looks and sees that he is the God who is above all. That is the uncomfortable truth. God is at the centre of this world, not us. And we need to realign our lives in line with that. But what follows, I think, is staggering off the back of what God has said here through the prophet Ezekiel. The way he will make his holy name known is by the the way he creates this transformed people of God. Have a look at verse 24 through to 27. I've got 26 and 27 on the screen. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart of I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, the description goes on and on. And what Ezekiel tells us is God is going to act in this incredible way to restore his honour and to make his name great again. And there's one phrase that is repeated 15 times. He keeps saying, I will. I will. I will. In other words, um, you are unable to do this, Israel. I'm going to come and act in a way that you can't. And I will do something profound to transform you to become this new people of God. I will take you out of the nations, which is where they had been scattered because of the judgment of God. He said, I will gather you together. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. I will bless you. I will save you. I will protect you. And the list just rolls on and on 15 times. And you get to the very end. And in verse 36, he says, I am the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. And then in verse 37, which really concludes this section, he says, then they will know that I'm the Lord. In other words, then my reputation, my name, will be restored when the world sees this new people of God. And it's profound what's being spoken of here is because, you see, What Ezekiel shows us is we are unable to please God in and of ourselves. We just can't. Uh, We're filled with pride, with hubris. We don't want God. And that's why God's reputation had been dragged through the mud. And he says, I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to gather you together. I'll give you a new heart, a new inclination to actually follow me. 
and you will become this incredible, beautiful people of God. And through that, my reputation will be restored. I mean, ask yourself the question, what is one of the most difficult things to do in life? Let me say, it's not to earn huge sums of money as difficult and as attractive as that might be for some. It's also not to get to the top of the industry that you're in. As difficult and as attractive as that might be for others. I think the most difficult thing in life to do is this, is to actually change yourself. There is this whole industry that has developed that people pay incredible money to, to change themselves. Because in our quiet, honest moments, as we look inside, so often we say, I don't like who I am. I want to be different. Is that not the case? Am I not the only one who thinks this? That when I look inside myself, I think, I don't like all the stuff that's in there. And it's the human condition where by nature we're self-seeking. By nature we reject God. By nature we put ourselves first. And in our honest moments we go, we don't want to be like that because it slowly destroys us. And the incredible thing is God says, I will change you. And I will build this beautiful people who will now radiate my glory. And then the transformation that is promised continues in chapter 37 with a different image. 36, it's about this internal transformation of heart and mind and will. 37, though, is very powerful because it speaks of the dead coming to life. And it's not so much a resurrection because there's not graves that are being spoken of, but rather there's just this dusty dryness and it spoke of the spiritual deadness of Israel in this vision. Where you have this valley that's full of dry bones. Let me read from uh, chapter 37 verse 1. In the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And it's this rhetorical question. Can Israel, which is being spoken of, actually bring themselves to life? And the answer is no. And it's the same for us. Can we bring ourselves to spiritual life under God? The answer is no. And then he said to me, verse 4, we'll prophesy to these bones, dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. And it's kind of a bizarre thing that Ezekiel's doing, this valley of dry bones, and he's speaking to them. And he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says to you. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. And it's this vision of the Spirit of God that we know came at the day of Pentecost is going to come into the, the people and bring them to new life. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it. And the word breath here is the word in the Old Testament, ruach. And it can mean breath, it can mean spirit. And it's being spoken of here is the breath or the spirit of God. Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath. You could say, come Holy Spirit. 
from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And so you see this second image of the reality that God will bring life to his people and he will bring them to life. He will change them from the inside and he will put in them his spirit that will bring them to life. And you see, this prophecy is fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. And I was thinking of so many different verses that we could look at in terms of the ministry of the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And I thought I'd bring you John 17 verse 1 to bring us back to where we started because it is so profound. And the setting is the night before Jesus is about to die. He's in the garden and he's praying. And it's this incredible long prayer where you see the heart of the Lord Jesus on the night before he's about to die. And John records this, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And what Jesus was saying is this, the hour, the hour of my death, the hour of my crucifixion is about to appear. Bring glory to your name, Father. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And I want you to stop and think about the cross. Because the cross is this incredible event in history where the Son, out of love for his Father and to restore the reputation of his Father and to make his name holy, he goes there. And brings glory to the Father. And how does he do that? By laying down his life. And dying in our place. And you see the greatness of God at the cross. It is the place where his mercy and his grace flows. It's the place where you see the holiness of God and sin is judged. But not upon us, but upon himself. It is the place of forgiveness. And the most astounding thing that this passage has reflected on to me is when God eventually fulfills this, he does it in the most profound way of bringing new life, new hearts. By sending his son to die in our place and making him the offering for our sin. And his greatness is seen at the cross. And what God wanted to be known by is his mercy and grace and love. And friends, he does love us. Absolutely he loves us. And he brings us to new life at the cross and transforms us there. And with the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he fills us with that love and grace in a way that we are transformed so that we give him the glory. And there's something incredibly beautiful and powerful and astounding about people who've been converted and born again in the way they stop living for themselves and they live for God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
and we glorify his name. There's this Copernican revolution that takes place. Copernicus was this great scientist, astronomer, who worked out that the world did not revolve around Earth. In the second century, a North African scientist, astronomer called Ptolemy, had posited that actually because they couldn't see the Earth moving, that really the whole solar system revolved around the Earth. And Nicholas Copernicus came hundreds of years later and said, actually, no, that's the wrong thing. The Earth actually is moving and we're moving around the sun. And it's such an apt illustration for the change that needs to take place in people's lives that we stop seeing that ourself is like the Earth that the world revolves around. But rather, we are to revolve around the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because He is at the centre. And we've been saved to give him the glory. And I thought to myself, how do I best illustrate this truth? And I couldn't help but think of a man I saw a video of that's on the Alpha course, who was so profoundly converted and was the epitome of someone who was lost and someone who the world had given up on. And it's an extreme story at one level, but he was so profoundly converted and now he lives his life to make the name of Jesus known. And that's what was being predicted here, that God would so act, I will, I will, to transform people into a group who would give him the glory. And so if you've seen this, enjoy it, but I suspect many of you won't. His name is Graham Seed, and he was a hooligan. By 1995, I was a tramp, and I didn't realise this then. The inside of my body was shutting down, so all I did was drink, take drugs, didn't eat. I didn't realise I was getting septicemia. I had malnutrition and dehydration. In March of 1996, some people turned up on the street, and they said to me, do you know Jesus loves you? And I chased them. Jesus, my nana sang about Jesus when I was a kid. There was no such thing a week after they came back. And I seen these Christian men and women on the street for the next six months. One morning I woke up, it was just a normal day. And I got my drink and my drugs and I collapsed. I was rushed to hospital. I was in a coma for six days. My mother was asked to come to the hospital. She went to the hospital. I was dead. I'd had my last rites on the sixth day consultant said to my mum that there's nothing I can do. So she said, can I have a few more hours to think about it? So my mum went out of the room and there was a lot of people there come to say goodbye to me. And then Tony, my mate, said to my mum, there's some Christian lads here. And my mum went, well, what good is that going to do? How can that help him? He's dead. And they said, well, let us pray for him. So they went and prayed for me and they put their hands on my head. And they said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, give this man new life. And I woke up, sat up, pulled the mask out my mouth. I was alive, come back to life. But it wasn't just a miraculous waking up of the coma. I woke up totally different. I knew I'd never drink again, I'd take drugs, I'd smoke. I wanted to help people. I actually thought I'd gone insane, to be honest. And these Christian men said to me, do you know what, Graham, you need to go on an alpha course. So I said, what's one of them? We went on the day away. 
So on the third talk of the afternoon, and I stood up and I said, Jesus, this is the exact words, I've never forgot it, it was November the 9th, 1996, a quarter to three. And I said, Jesus, and I, I've been told you love me, and I kind of believe that you love me, but it's not enough. I need to know something in my heart. And as I said that, and I said, sorry, will you come into my life? I fell back into my chair, and I was crying. I, I couldn't stop. At that moment, as them tears flooded out my eyes, I knew where I was from, I knew who I was, and I knew what I had to do. So that night at 10 o'clock, I went back to the streets of Middlesbrough, full of Jesus, and I began my ministry. That was 19 years ago, and ever since then, that's what I've done. I've gone, I've told people about Jesus, I've run 141 Alpha courses. There's a couple of things I say to people on the streets or in the prison when I first meet them because they're full of doubt, you know, I was doubtful and I say, well, Grandma, how do you really know that, you know, you didn't just wake up out of a coma? Now, maybe I did just come out of that coma by coincidence, but I often say, for the last 19 years, why have I lived how I have, you know, where did the violence go? Where did the anger and the rejection and not knowing about love, where did that go in one night? Jesus is supreme love, that's what changes, that's what changed Gram Seed. So if it changed Gram Seed, it does for anyone. It's an amazing story, isn't it? And it's what Ezekiel predicted that he would bring people who are spiritually dead to life, give them a new heart, a new will. And friends, that is the power of the gospel. And not just bring them a new heart and new will, but turn us into a people who have God at the center, who bring him the glory. I wonder what's on your bucket list. I think all of us deep down have some sort of list. And I wonder what's on there that brings glory to God. Because friends, that what, that's what we're called to do. To be vehicles of his grace, transformed by his love and forgiveness that we've found at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and filled by his spirit. And live for him in a way that we will bring him the glory in this world and restore his name as we await his return. What is on our bucket list? Let's have a moment to pray.